Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Come on for picture, first positions, everyone. Yo, go. And action! Hello and welcome to episode 332 of the Filmmakers Podcast. This is a podcast where we talk filmmaking. From studio films to indie blockbusters, how to make them, how to get them made, and how not to F up the intro and jump your partner's bit, Giles. (laughs) In our very humble opinion. You did it. You did it. You got there in the end. Uh, this is the Filmmakers Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Today on the show, we have Dungeons and Dragons Honor Amongst Thieves, directors, and the producer. Ladies and gentlemen, this is huge. They are Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, the two directors, and producer Jeremy Latcham. Um, I wasn't around uh to record this. I don't know where I was at the time, because you did this a while ago, didn't you, Hugh? I don't think we remember either. No, it's been, it's, been, it's been a little bit, but it's good to see it coming out. Yeah. This voice you hear now, you have heard him on the podcast before. He is Hugh Siddle. Uh, he is the man behind our marketing on the podcast, and he has jumped in and hosted before. Being a big D&D fan, when this came up, you literally stuck your hand up straight away and went, me, me. I think there was an email that says, shotgun co-hosting this one. <laughs> Yes, yeah, because I was away. I was like, yeah, definitely, mate, go for it. If you're interested, why not? I was joined by the magnificent Christian James to cover the filmmaking side of things. You don't realise how big some people are until you kind of go and delve into them deeply Mm because these are three really big names. Jeremy is one of the early producers of the MCU. He kind of helps put it all together. John and Jonathan were both writers on Spider-Man. They really know how to put together a big, successful film. They also both directed Game Night as well, which... Um, was a huge, huge hit, I think, about three, four years ago. Starring Jason Bateman. Uh, obviously, if you haven't seen that and you fancy a fantastic comedy, then go watch it. It's brilliant. What will our audience take away from you and CJ's chat with these wonderful gentlemen? Firstly, we talk about how did the MCU get started, putting all of it together from that team of just six people at the start. Then we talked about how you put together a film based on an existing IP, how you tell an interesting story while still being respectful of tens of years of what came before. And then the new rise of the genre film, how Hollywood is now looking into the world of genre for its inspiration. I can't wait for our audience to hear that. You also talked about uh, the story behind Dungeons and Dragons, Honor Among Thieves, how it got made, uh, what it was like on set, 
or what it is like on set of a big budget film and how you write a film that makes you laugh, cry and cheer in one. Uh, and that is the buzz that this film is getting. We haven't seen it because it is out this Friday, the 31st of March. But this film has been getting a lot of buzz. Yeah, no, it has been getting some really good buzz. I think a lot of people have been pleasantly surprised by this. Yeah, I agree 100%. That's coming up for you uh, on this week's episode of the Filmmakers Podcast. We just wanted to do a couple of plugs, a couple of shout outs. Next week's episode, we've got Richard Eyre, the director of Alleluia. Uh, the new Judy Dench, Jennifer Saunders starring movie. Myself and Matthew Butler Hart and Tori Butler Hart sat down with him and had an amazing chat. You're going to really love that one. And we've also got um, Florian Zeller coming up, the director of The Sun, um, Hugh Jackman starring movie. Uh, thank you all so much for listening to last week's The Business of Film Explained with Stephen Follows, myself, and Phil Hawkins. They just, people love them. We get so many comments uh, on those episodes. Genuinely, I mean, I'll be the freely admit I'm the junior partner when it comes to TFP hosts. They <laughs> are amazingly informative, Giles. Mm. Like, it's really, really useful to have some sort of dedicated resource there that actually walks you through beyond just being behind the camera. So there you go. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, do go listen to it after you've listened to this. Fascinating. It's called The Business of Film Explained. We've just done the second one. The first one was a couple of months ago. We're going to try and do them every month. Uh, that's the plan. But we have some shout-outs to give some other films, don't we, Giles? Yes, we do. Uh, in fact, we have our wonderful filmmaking friend, Kelly Holmes, and her film, The Sin Eater. She's doing a crowdfunder for this. It started yesterday. Basically, they've already shot a lot of the film, and they're needing completion funds they don't need much but this film looks excellent go on to greenlit uh, and check it out link to it will be in the show notes but it's a story about a desperate young mother as she carries out a forbidden ritual to save the soul of her unbaptized dead baby but she's tricked into taking on a terrifying supernatural burden it's a powerful gothic horror short film and it needs help to get over the lines also shout outs to joe allett uh, she was also one of the stars of three day millionaire which is available on netflix now do go support uh, <laughs> which is my produced movie uh, jason mccolgan mark shields craig hayworth and craig roberts that filmed um if you're not part of filmed yet check it out it is film d adam smith Michael Pierce, and also shout out to Chloe Chudasama. So Chloe is looking for a sponsor for the movie premiere of their short film, their short action sci-fi film, Ascendance. They're holding it at BAFTA. It's a cast and industry screening of the film uh, with networking drinks after. Basically, uh, can they... Basically, if anyone wants to chuck a couple of quid in, I imagine they might need a little bit more than that to sponsor this then please do so if anyone out there um really fancies that getting a name on a step and repeat board um and really being part of and to be honest uh, chloe and leroy uh, nocturnal pictures are going places so you would be part of a really growing filmmaking community there as well link to that is in the show notes it's under sponsor seeker uh, ascendance movie so check that out as well like i say link to all that is in the show notes so let's get to the episode, shall we? This is Dungeons & Dragons, Honour Amongst Thieves. But we haven't actually said who it stars. Who stars in this movie, Hugh? We've really got a star-studded cast. This is a proper Hollywood blockbuster. We've got Chris Pine heading it up. We've got mm. Hugh Grant. We've got Michelle mm. Rodriguez. Yeah, Reggie Jean Page and Justice Smith. Uh, two massively up-and-coming actors right now. So yeah, this 
cast is amazing, this film is supposed to be amazing, and it's based on Hasbro's Dungeons and Dragons, aka D&D. So, it is out this Friday, go support. But first of all, listen to this week's episode, here it is. Sit back, relax, and enjoy their chat. Hello. Hello. We're good, yeah. good. I'm Jonathan. I'm John. I'm John. That's Jeremy. Jeremy. So if we put this a little further away. Just sit really close together or sit in each other's laps or something, and that would <laughs> help. For an hour, we can you know how we, we made yeah. this movie. Because we were always... <laughs> is, that your, is that your technique? The directing together? <laughs> right. You just yeah. like to get okay. cozy. Full D&D party style. Brief introduction before we launch straight into things. I'm Hugh, the resident person to ask all the D&D question. CJ is the one who is all about the film world. We're going to try and mix up and hopefully ask a few questions that you haven't been asked 25 times already. I love it. I <laughs> love it. Please. What yeah. is your most common question so far? What have you had the most? The common question is, uh, do you? What is the future of the of the movie? In yeah. that, is like, the start of a will franchise? there be sequels? Will there be spinoffs? Good. We won't do any of that mm. then. In that case. I think I'll launch straight into it and start off with the one question I've been wanting to ask since we got the invitation to do this, which is why now for recreating the D&D kind of movie? Because obviously there have been D&D movies before, but yeah. they are, let's generously call them cult classics. No, um, <laughs> diplomatic podcast. <laughs> um, but obviously it's... It, D&D and tabletop gaming as a whole has experienced a real resurgence in the last kind of four or five years with Critical Role, with all of the other kind of streams and actual plays coming out. What made you guys think that now is the time to kind of bring back the D&D movie? Jeremy? Well, I think there's a couple things. I think that um, I think that the cultural resurgence of D&D is obviously makes it timely. And I think that there's a real interest in it. I also think that, you know, to be to be kind to those previous films, I don't think the technology truly was there to kind of make it happen. And I don't just mean the visual effects technology, the CG, I think also the evolution of prosthetic technology, the evolution of what they do over at Legacy, people that build the Iron Man suits and the build Baby Yoda, like they were intricately involved. And so I think the technology's kind of changed. I think also that like the world has changed in so much that like these things that used to be niche and kind of genre and and those are those kind of things have become more mainstream. I think that, you know, 10, 15 years of Marvel has kind of opened up the world to the idea that like the subculture of geekdom is like something that we can all now embrace. And I think so to take the thing that is kind of the grandfather of it all, the Dungeons and Dragons mm. world, it's, this is like the king of all those things. Of, of genre and to take that and make it as a big movie is kind of a brash, crazy move. And, and that's what makes it fun. And there's something irresistible as filmmakers to being able to play in such an enormous sandbox, which is what D&D is. It's 50 years of lore, of characters and monsters and places, but without the solidified structure of a novel as you have with Lord of the Rings, mm. it's a constantly evolving and changing thing. And so it just felt natural to want to jump into that, create a story of our own using mm, I mean, that you, world. What came first? Were you fans first and you chased the project? Or was it more, you know, or did Jeremy have the project and approached you? How did it come together? So so I, I was first introduced to Dungeons & Dragons when I was a, a, a child actor on the set of Freaks and Geeks. 
Um, there was an episode where my character is playing it. I knew about it, but had never played. And so we, we put together a campaign with the cast, which God, I wish we had a video of, cause it'd be such a surreal thing to look back at. But um, I immediately fell in love with it because I, as someone who loves to tell stories, it is a storyteller's medium. It is the most fun for people who who can find the creativity and, and the stories in kind of any situation. And then I started a campaign before even the pandemic, before we joined the project. And so when it came along, before even Jeremy was involved, it had been sitting at Paramount for quite some time. And then Warner Brothers before that. I, I told Jonathan, who was also a fan of the game and had played when he was a kid, this this is special. This allows us to kind of inject our voice into something that um, is familiar to some people and entirely new to others, but to really create a world. And there seemed like an opportunity to take whatever the sensibility is that we brought to other films to this bigger canvas. It was almost as if we'd been building single family homes for a time. And then a studio, two studios came and said, do you want to build a skyscraper? And we saw a unique opportunity to translate that to this, to this bigger world. And to their credit, they let us do that. You know, like it's a movie that we're so proud of. And I think it'll surprise people because it is this huge world, but it feels like there's access points at every level for people, whether they care about fantasy, whether they know anything about the indie, it doesn't matter because it's really about relatable, flawed characters getting caught up in an adventure. And that's the best kind of movie. Yeah, as for me, like I had, um, I had known these guys from, from Spider-Man Homecoming, which, which I produced when I was still at Marvel. And mm -hmm. I had read a script of theirs called Bus Driver, which is still, I will say, that is like a movie that should get made someday. It's like this, it's one of my favorite screenplays I've ever read. It's just so damn funny and so warm and full of heart and everything else. And I'd wanted to work with these guys again because we had such a great experience on on Spidey together and bringing that together. And I, I thought we I thought they did an incredible job of like establishing the tone and making that John Hughes kind of thing happen and, and saying, how do we take that teen comedy genre from the 80s and sensibility wise and make that something that a kid today can relate to? And 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 the crazy thing about the world today is like the, the teen comedy has gone. Right. Like you can't make a teen comedy for theatrical without a big hook and really have it succeed. Mm -hmm. And so how do you do that? You put it inside of a, uh, inside of a superhero movie. And I think that this is like similar in that regard. And this is really like a, a road trip about a group of people that don't necessarily all see it the same way. And they have to become together, become a family over it. And I think that's a movie that you don't necessarily go make as theatrical unless you can roll it into something big like D&D. &D. And so it really comes down to like taking that character approach and like taking that version of a, of a movie that's about people on an adventure together and putting it in this giant world, this giant canvas. And so to me, that was what was really appealing about this was like the opportunity to work with these two guys again, because we had really had so much fun together. What was your path? So you, you were jobbing around, trying all different jobs. How did you, I imagine it's a very long story, but you know, what was the sort of like, it's actually not that long of a story, but it involves winning a car on The Price is Right, kind of a weird twist. Wow, okay, excellent. I wasn't yeah. expecting that. I, I was a, uh, I always wanted to work on in, in the movie business. I wanted to be a film producer. That was the only job that I wanted. I never had aspirations to be a director or a writer or an actor. I only wanted to be a producer. I wanted to bring people together and make movies and, and like kind of make that all happen. And uh, I was an intern one summer at Miramax Dimension back in the day. And they paid me $5 a day for lunch. And it was not very much money. And so I was broke. And my parents said, you can't go to L.A. again next summer. You can't have these jobs that don't pay. 
And so I went on the prices right at the end of the summer and I won a car from Bob Barker. And all of a sudden I sold it in the newspaper in Tulsa, Oklahoma with a classified ad that said, starving student wins car, needs cash, you know, and put it $14,000. I had 14 grand. And I was like, I am set for life. This is awesome. <laughs> it's all worked out. I'm going back to Hollywood. And I was an assistant at a talent agency for a year. I knew I didn't want to do that. And there was a guy leaving the talent agency named David Maisel to go run Marvel. And I became his assistant. And I went to Marvel with him as an assistant. And we raised $500 million from banks to fund Marvel. And there were only six people at the company. And there was no one to make the movies. What would have been in, uh, you know, what were you working on at that time? What was sort of, what was the ground looking like at Marvel around that? Around I mean, Marvel? at that time it was, it was Marvel was making licensed films for Sony and Fox and, you know, yeah. they, they, they had a producer fee and they got paid a percentage and they didn't really have any control or any say or any like ability to make the movies good, which was driving <laughs> Kevin Feige crazy yeah. because, you know, it's like you, you can only do so much when you don't have any control. And so when this idea came along to fund the studio, all of a sudden there needed to be people to make the films. And Kevin was gracious enough to point at me and say, you want to make movies, right? You're on Iron Man. I need a movie. And I was 25 when he said that. And I, my job was to put together Iron Man 1. And it was, it was crazy. You know, like I, I remember showing Kevin a trailer for Zathura that Favreau had directed and saying, this is pretty cool. And I'm hiring writers to, to, to make the first Iron Man. And, and then I was there for 14 years just making superhero movies. And it was 13-ish years making superhero movies. And he didn't have gray hair when he yeah, started. And I had gray hair. <laughs> I was going to say. I was going to say. I mean, I mean like, you've given a very humble account of it, but to our listeners, like, have no doubt that Jeremy is one of the key people behind the early MCU. I mean, you were on the first two Iron Mans, you EP'd the first two Avengers films, you did Guardians. It must have been a was, crazy journey that you launched into. It was the craziest experience you could ever imagine. And obviously, when we were doing it, we had no idea that it would actually connect and actually resonate. You know, we made Iron Man 1 as an independent film for a hundred and $40 million or something. And it was uh, entirely independently financed. And we had a distribution deal with Paramount. And it was a big, big, big gamble. And if the movie did not succeed, all of the film rights to the Marvel characters were going to go to Morgan Stanley or Merrill Lynch or one of these banks was just going to get wow. the film rights. And they were going to be able to sell them to whoever. And it was a huge gamble and was fun because there was no one to tell us no. There wasn't a studio. No one, No one knew what to do. And so it was like this really, it was the greatest film school ever. And so I feel like as a producer, I got to learn so much in that early phases of Marvel. I was there, you know, through Spider-Man Homecoming. And, and when you were at Marvel, you were working on all the films, intimately involved in each other's movies. And like you're, there's like this real creative team that Kevin builds. You know, now it's like my hope is to be building the new things, to be building the new worlds that we get to inhabit. And to, to make sure that, like, the culture does not just become a monoculture of... And to Jeremy's credit, I mean, he, he, really is, he really is a filmmaker. I mean, very often in this business, when you work with the producer, you wonder what the hell it is they do. I mean, I, you know, we, we worked with so many, and, and some of them great, some of them not so great. But what sets Jeremy apart from anyone else I've really worked with in this industry in a producerial capacity is he gets his hands dirty. He will, do, he, he will take on any title really, and believes so much in the work that we're doing that I always felt 
his unfiltered support, and which was absolutely vital in this process because what we were building was so huge, so big with so many setbacks and potential obstacles and ways for the thing to just fall apart entirely that his exuberance and optimism and also eye for what makes these movies work for general audiences, I think is entirely a testament to, to his own capabilities. And, and that's why after we worked with him on Spider-Man Homecoming, we said, we got to work with Jeremy again. He's unlike anyone else we've ever worked yeah, with. He really does bring our dreams guys, to life. Guys, getting embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 I, mean, I could literally talk for two hours about how much I, I, mean, I I'll know that you were so exuberant there, you nearly knocked the lamp in the background of our recording over. <laughs> Let's touch on that general audience um, thing you mentioned there, John, though, which is obviously D&D is a very, very long-lasting world. It's got a lot of dedicated fans yeah. across multiple generations. How yeah. do you guys go about creating I'll, that so it's still an appealing audience for everybody while still being distinctly D&D? I'll, I'll tell you how, how you don't do it is to break all of the all the rules and make it to betray what it is that makes D&D special. I think there is a way to make something appealing to people that aren't familiar with it without losing the DNA of D&D. And that was that was something that that was the, the inherent challenge. And I think ultimately it starts with making a good movie. That's sort of the approach we took to our Spider-Man movie, there's a tendency, I think, as a writer to get caught up in the size and scope and the, um, you know, the sort of significance of the movie you're making. What we tried to do is not let that color our approach to it. You know, we approached it like we would any of our movies. What's the way in for the audience? What are we rooting for? Who do we care about? And then on top of that, oh yeah, there's a lot of scope and a lot of monsters and a lot of you know set pieces to this. But really it starts with the core of it. And for, the, for us, it was these characters. Yeah, if, you, if you don't care about the characters, you don't care about the movie. And, and they have to, there has to be something relatable about each and every one of them in their own way. And so even our villain, you know, we, we never want to have a, a mustache twirly villain who you can never sink your teeth into or understand their intentions. So the best villain in our minds is someone where you totally understand why they're doing what they're doing and can sort of see a little bit of yourself in them. And that to me is what really makes it more complicated, but not confusing. Mm, so you kind of wanted to get that. You wanted to still make sure it had some of the mechanics and everything that D&D has inherent to it without being completely like, what on earth is this? Somebody has to go explain this mechanic of D&D &D and right, suddenly that's great exactly character. Right. Oh, it could, be, it could be two hours of exposition if we were doing our jobs wrong. I mean, we, we really do adhere to the magic and the creatures and the locations without bogging it down with the minutiae. You touched as well on the kind of the set pieces and the effects and everything. I mean, this obviously it's an effects heavy movie and that must be quite an interesting filming experience. We made a decision early on that we didn't want this to just live in the blue screen world, that it had to have as much substance and reality as we possibly could. Harkening back to the movies we love from the 80s, the never ending stories and that kind of thing, because you felt like there was something there. And now that we have the technology to make it look even better with a combination of practical effects and digital ones. And I think it helps the actors, too, because they have something to play off of. It's not just a tennis ball on a pole. And it creates a reality for the audience that. Is yeah, I think I think we spent a lot of time like in the in the world of movie like discussion talking about the evolution of CG. And we don't mm. spend a lot of time talking about the evolution of practical effects. 
And it, there's been as much innovation and trailblazing in practical effects as there has been in CG. And so the practical work is getting to be so much more sophisticated and so much more uh, uh, skilled in, in ways that I think people don't quite realize, you know, like the, like if you have like a, we have this dragon board in the movie that, that legacy designed for us. And, and, you know, we had an incredible drawing of what we wanted the dragon board to look like taken directly from the lore. And then how do you make that real? And the, the amount of sophistication that goes into the prosthetic now mm. is so different than prosthetics in the eighties when it was a mask. And like, there's a guy in a mask and maybe there's a puppeteer moving a jaw or something to make it a little more real. And now it's like being driven by motion capture. So all like the digital technology is behind the scenes of the practical work. And so the practical mm. work has evolved in such a way. And so the whole the whole endeavor gets to be the, the craft gets to be cooler and cooler and cooler. And it's it's really fun to watch the evolution. I mean, it happened on the Iron Man suit, like the original Iron Man suits. Like when we put Downey in the first Iron Man suit in Long Beach in 2006, seven, he had to lay on the ground and a guy would screw him into the suit like. Allen Rich by Allen Rich, all the way up and down his legs, all the way up and down his armpits. He's a thousand little Allen Riches screwing him in. And, and then he had to pee and then an hour to get him out of it. And, and then by the by the end, you know, it was all magnets hidden inside of it. And the 3D printing and everything had changed. And all those innovations are like now we're getting to use all the innovative stuff. Yeah. And it's it's amazing. Visiting Legacy, uh, when we first started, Legacy is the, the company that built all these practical effects. It was one of my favorite days working on this on this film because it's like going to a, a playground because you can see how they're utilizing these innovations in technology into uh, the simplicity uh, or visual simplicity of practical effects. Like he was talking about motion capture. There was a puppeteer that was saying the lines, making facial expressions that a camera was capturing and then translating those facial expressions to the servos in the face of the dragonborn that was worn by another puppeteer. I mean, some of the most incredible stuff you'd ever, that you could ever imagine that we could have just gone fully CG with. Now, this is not to take away from the incredible work that our visual effects vendors at MPC and ILM did. Some of the stuff they did is also equally innovative because this is a this is a technology that's also evolving and growing the, the the key was to find a perfect hybrid of these two these two technologies in the same way that Spielberg did with Jurassic Park which we keep saying is like one of the one of the things we kept drawing inspiration from how he was so a, he was able to so seamlessly combine these two separate worlds and make it all feel integrated that was something that really important to us and to the the credit of the studios that that financed and helped make this film they let us do that and that's something that you don't often find in movies these days so it was it was really liberating but also incredibly challenging chaps how was the uh just going back i'm curious as to how you transition from writing duo to directing and how did had you directed much before together or how did you know that's going to translate as effectively as your writing partnership we both had ambitions to be directors as kids i mean i I had the camera from the school library and i would shoot these silly little films during my lunch period john made films as a kid as well i was i was eight years old making plays and short films in my basement we always sort of try that we do what the rule they tell you as a screenwriter is don't try to direct from the page but we always did because the only way we know how to write is to see the movie unfolding as we're writing it. And so that just naturally lends itself to wanting to get behind the camera. 
we had the good fortune of seeing some of our scripts turned into features. In some cases, we loved the results. In other cases, we felt like, ah, they weren't quite the way we would have done it. And, and were you on set a lot at that time as well? We were on you, the set. Yeah. Yes. Every, every moment we could be on the set, every yeah. director who would tolerate having the writers there, we were there. But yeah. it was very often that sort of stereotypical thing of us pushing up our glass and being, um, excuse, if I could, if I may. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Go back to your uh, the, the writer tent. But yeah, it was it, it's, a, it's a frustrating thing as a writer, but also equally exciting because you get to see this thing come to life. Not quite in the way that you imagine, but sometimes better than you imagine. And so we had formed a relationship with the people at New Line because we had done a number of movies with them. They knew that we wanted to direct and we wrote uh, this movie Vacation. And they asked us, do you want to direct it? Jumped at the chance to do it. And Did you write it with, an, with, with a mind to direct it? Or were you write, is it another writing gig? I don't know. I, I don't know if we were intending to direct it at the time, but we wrote it. And, and when they gave us the opportunity, we knew we had to take it because it was our, our way into directing. And, you know, it was a, it was a, our focus was on the funny. It was really just to make something that felt true to the original franchise and made people laugh. And then when we did game night, we we knew we had to to level up in a way and make something that we felt like was visually different and kind of changing changing the mold on on it sounds super ambitious and annoying, but like sort of changing the mold on how comedies are perceived. And so we really wanted it to feel like a thriller and look like a thriller, sound like a thriller with the music from Cliff Martinez and and the mm. cinematography and uh, and you know it was always a challenge because we 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 worried that maybe people would not laugh if it looks scary and and intense but in fact it actually bolstered the comedy because it raised the stakes and made us invest in the characters that much more and understand that oh these people could die at any moment and when you understand those stakes I think it actually makes things funnier. I feel like yeah. I feel like I called you guys that night when I walked out of the theater, or maybe I just shot a text or an email to you. But I remember seeing Game Night in Canada. I was up making a film, and my wife and I went to the cinema, and I just had the greatest time. <laughs> and I was so excited for you guys when I saw that movie because I was like, "You've just unlocked the level. Like it's like the key's been switched. Yeah, you guys are going to be able to go make a really, really big, fun movie somewhere." And get to play with all the toys and, and all the things because because I saw it. I was like, that's it. Like this is this is your now we're in business, boys. I mean, there's great looking film and it's yeah. really got heart. Thank well, you. Thank you. No, I think like John said, I mean, something sort of happened in the early 2000s with film comedy where it became a lot about improvisation. And some of the funniest movies of that time were a function of that actors finding things in the moment. And there is great comedy that comes from that. But what it does from a filmmaking standpoint is it limits you visually. You can't really plan your shots too much if you don't know exactly what the actors are going to say and do. And so we decided to be a little more rigid with the script and really plan the hell out of how the coverage was going to go. It was an experiment in a way to to strictly adhere to the look and vision of the film. Uh, and because we had such an incredible cast that were able to find the funny, even in uh, less um, uh, less inviting comedic circumstances, it came together in a way that we were really proud of. It also taught us or made us more confident in the notion that Things can be funny, even if you shoot them in a way that they're not traditionally shot. Because it's hmm. manipulating the audience's expectations. One of the things we did in Game Night was when Jesse Plemons is on screen as the weird neighbor, Gary, 
the camera's always slowly dollying in all of Jeremy Latcham's early career because there's a visual language that the audiences have learned over the years of watching movies that if the camera's dollying, something ominous is happening, something meaningful is happening, but he, nothing of that nature was happening in that scene. So it's just talking about Frito Lay. Yeah, it's super mm. unsettling. There's an era, wasn't there, like SNL for years. It was always the two-shot comedy, wasn't it? It's always felt like in the 80s and early 90s, or even later, you either had a, a, a film that would be a visual feast, or if it was comedy, you knew going in it was going to be a limited... That's right. That you, you knew know, it wouldn't look, it wouldn't yeah, look great. It, and so that was that was the challenge. And honestly, it, like, it allowed us to explore that uh, cinematic approach with this with this film. We knew that we couldn't have as much humour in it as we wanted without sacrificing the look because we wanted this to be the most beautiful movie we've ever made you know we each movie we make we want to make it better than the last and so that was what we set out to do and because now we had a much bigger toolbox and this incredible cast of characters it really allowed us to push the limits of our own imagination which was incredibly gratifying and I, I also think that like genre has changed a bit and uh, like the, the right now there's not as many comedies in theaters that are performing for people you know there's not the big screen meet the fockers and austin powers like the era of like the huge comedy blockbusters like <laughs> not, the fire, not meet the parents meet, meet the, the parents yeah you know, i forgot the name yeah, of it. The <laughs> no but you know what i mean like the, the era of like that big comedy blockbuster has kind of changed and i feel like now yeah. that it is inherent on these movies these big spectacle you know action films to actually be the conduit to comedies then and I think like, if you look at the, over the years, like a lot of times the funniest movie of the year is like one of these big Marvel films, which is just full of action and everything else, but legitimately funny. And so the the thing that I'm always looking for in, in, in filmmakers that, that I want to work with are like people that can do all the big stuff. And, and there's a way to learn and how to do all the big stuff. And it's that's very manageable, but that can actually bring the the, the comedy and the, and the heart yeah. to it, you know, because I think yeah. that these the notion of the of the director as you know, stuntman becomes second unit director, becomes director or, you know, slick commercial directors. I think that's like careful changing a little bit. <laughs> like I think that the thing that's happening. No, no, keep going. It's good. We, we want, <laughs> I think as an audience, we want, we want more out of these movies. We want a, a fuller experience out of these particular kinds of films than maybe a, a cinematographer turned directors kind of bring to it. You know, there's like a different thing mm. there that's like, what, I just he's gonna that. say he's gonna say every job turned directors yeah. to protect what about <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. Before we all shoot ourselves in the feet, you have overset up my next question quite nicely there, Jeremy, which is... Obviously, this is a film that kind of refuses to be pigeonholed into That's anything. Right. It's part comedy, yes. it's part high fantasy epic and everything. Yeah. But when it when it comes out and when the audiences come out of the theatre, what do you want them to feel, feel the film has been? Were you aiming to be a comedy with high fancy elements like what do you think yeah. is the forefront genre of the film I, I i want them i want them to come out buzzing i want them to come out feeling like they they experienced something special and this is a very ambitious statement but you know we screened it we did a friends and family screening um recently for people who had no idea what to expect and it was like that perfect reaction and they were coming out and like they it, it really like what we what we tried to do is deliver on on every every emotion you know we wanted to make people cry we wanted to make people laugh and and be scared and be excited and on the edge of their seat and you know what what dungeons and dragons what is so unique to dungeons and dragons is that that's what you want to feel in a perfect campaign as well so it did, it did feel like that perfect blend of of all of those things the, the the films that really make an impression on me are the ones that aren't like anything i've seen before yeah and i honestly believe we've done something that isn't quite like anything else and there's no quite there's no perfect analog for it you know i mean princess bride in a way but like to make an epic fantasy movie that makes you laugh out loud makes it has actually made people cry in some screenings i mean to do that is is really the goal and, and was from the beginning and hopefully we've achieved that yeah and I, I think just thematically to me the found family like that's a theme that i always want to go back to this notion that the world's kind of a messed up place and and your relationship with your family and your you know your parents or whatever it is and your extended family is what it is and then like people go out in the world they find this family that they build that becomes their people and they walk away. And I think that's kind of what makes the going to the movies. I think that's what you're always looking for is that is that reassurance that like you can find your people like mm -hmm. you can find your way in the world and it's scary and weird. And you can find the your tribe of folks that are going to be there for you. And it's like, I don't know, it's like a very simplistic kind of view of these movies. But I think that's what they're kind of for. Yeah. Is, and I, I think this movie does a really good job of that. Like I, I look at it and I go, yeah, they found each other and I want to be with them. I want to watch them. And as, as screenwriters, too, I mean, I think it was really important to us to avoid tropes as much as we could, um, uh, to walk people down the path of the trope that they think it's going to be and then pull the rug out from under them. I, it's, it's what we tried to do with Game Night. I think we were using the familiar tropes of comedies and thrillers to 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 trick people into thinking that it was going to be one thing and then and then and then hit them over the head with something well, yeah. else. And that's kind of what we were setting out to do here as well. You guys are really great at turning scenes in ways that you don't expect. I mean, like the, my favorite scene in Spider-Man Homecoming that was, I think, the only scene in the movie that was from the very, very first draft that like verbatim never, ever changed was the scene in the car with Keaton and, and Peter. It was just so like you read it. And you're like, this is perfect. This scene will never change. Do not change the scene. Yeah, I remember as we were writing it, we were like, 
jumping up and down. <laughs> because this, this, this is this the one where, I mean, spoilers for those few people who haven't somehow seen Spider-Man Homecoming yet. This is the one where it's Michael Keaton's character has figured out who like, Peter Parker is Spider-Man. It's pretty much it's the, the implied threat. Well, the That's right. threat that, without, without giving it away to his daughter, who we reveal uh, was connected to, you know, was the sort of connecting force between Spider-Man and his biggest it's, foe in that film. It's our homage to Hitchcock in a lot of ways, because there's no, some I, scenes. I, I will agree with Jeremy there. That scene is absolutely fantastic. It's definitely <laughs> one of the scenes that makes the film. It's just great. And it's, these guys just have this way of the their writing of doing these things and taking you on this journey in the middle of what should be this like light, fun, John Hughes comedy and then there's like a truly menacing scene right in the middle of it and you're like how the hell did this happen like what what is happening it's, here? it's, it's really yeah. it's really hard it's, it's fun it's <laughs> really it's really hard especially with like in in this film to to kind of bridge the gap between making people cry and then making people laugh and then making people cry again but it, it is it is the best challenge yeah it's I, mean, I always love this Hitchcock quote about play the audience like a piano and once you have them hooked into the characters, you can sort of manipulate them in a good way and take them where they don't know they're going. And then they find themselves there and they're surprised. I mean, the most the most fun thing in, in every screening and it was the most consistent thing as well when we were when we were test screening it for audiences because of COVID, we were often not able to actually be there. So we were just watching on this live feed of th these people. All their eyes were glowing from the uh, from the infrared cameras. But, you know, the perfect way to see a movie. It's very surreal. Uh, uh, but, but what was always what was very consistent was that you could always see when the audience got on board with the film. Because it starts off, you have no idea what to expect. It's called Dungeons and Dragons, so you're probably expecting one thing. And it takes a minute uh, for people to find their footing with the with the characters and the story. And there's always that turning point about 10 to 15 minutes into the film where you suddenly see people kind of locking in and getting more engaged. And that was always really fun because that's when we knew we had them. You know, that's when we knew that everything that came after that was going to to work because it takes a second to lay that groundwork. And you have to be confident that even if it doesn't feel like they're connecting at first, it's all in an effort to kind of ease them into what is hopefully so unique about this movie one thing that, one thing that's kind of worth talking about from a like people might not know how that process works but it's it's really surreal because you're showing the movie to people that don't know what movie they're seeing they've gotten a, a, an invite to a film and it's they're being said come to a mall in paramus new jersey on tuesday at 7 p.m and if you've liked this list of 10 films there's something you should come see. And so they have no idea what movie they're walking into. They have no context. They've seen no marketing. They've not seen a trailer to set an expectation. So you're really like walking up, you're putting a movie on a screen for 500 people that have no idea what they're walking into. And by the way, as a filmmaker doing that, it's the most terrifying, <laughs> so terrifying. It's the most terrifying part of this whole process. It wasn't the most grueling day of shooting. It was those days that we were screening it for a test audience because it's that, it's that come to Jesus moment where you realize if the movie works or it doesn't. And we've been, and, you know, as having been in this business for a long time, like we, we've experienced both sides of that. Yeah. And it's, it's just a wild, it's a wild ride because like you can convince yourself that something's working and that, Oh, this makes sense. And Oh yeah. We all have like intellectualize decisions that you, that, you know, we're all making collectively in the editing room or whatever. We're like, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, and you watch it. You, you can't hide from the no. fact that nobody 
laughed or moved or reacted or whatever it was to something that you're like, okay, well, it doesn't matter whose idea it was. It's a problem with Paramus. It's Paramus. With that yeah. in mind, though, you've also got a few hurdles to jump as well in terms of I think yeah. a, a huge part of your audience are going to be like, you know, they've already excluded it. How did you or how did you approach that? Well, I think we try to approach it because, I, you know, as I played it before, certainly as a kid, but would I run out to see a Dungeons and Dragons movie? Not necessarily. So I had to get over my own hurdle. You know, I had to figure out how do we make this enticing to an audience that wouldn't normally go to a fantasy film? and who has never played the game. And again, that started with, with characters and a story that could work in modern day that would be relatable to anyone, really. And it was that threading that genre needle that was crucial for, for me um, because I wanted I want this to be a movie that my mom wants to see, and, and yeah. she doesn't like much of my work. <laughs> on on the flip side of that what was it like being handed something with that much history and that many people who've kind of contributed to it you can't think too much about it when you're making it because in the same way that when we set out to do spider-man homecoming there is such a legacy behind that if you think too much about it it will paralyze you exactly so so you know honestly like we we, we set out to make the the movie we wanted to make and then I think because we had all of these conversations leading up to it, the Wizards of the Coast in, in Seattle and my familiarity with the, with the game and my love for the game, I think it came naturally to, to make it kind of a love letter to Dungeons and Dragons without us setting out to make a love letter, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I think the thing you have to do when you're handed something that people love this much is, I mean, the thing Kevin Feige always said to me, and it's resonated with me and sticks with me all the time, is just like the notion that, like, we're the custodians right now. You know, it's been here before us. It'll be here after us. And in this moment, we're the people who have been charged with protecting it. And our job is to leave it better than we found it and to uh, to not inherently, like, change what it is and to make it the best version of itself. And And so you have to, like, take it and, like, you, it's like it's a brutal responsibility because like people have spent their life and their and their their childhood and their adulthood playing and loving and caring about this world. And so you have to take the time to understand it, to dig into it, to like really think about what it is and what makes it work for people, and then try to translate that out for a broader audience. And I think honestly, like I am not like the world's biggest. I didn't come to Marvel knowing the Marvel stuff. I didn't come to this knowing everything about this. What I love is movies. Like I am a movie guy. I love films. And so my job is always to try to figure out, like, how do you make the film of this accessible to everybody? But I think if you if you treat it with respect and like really love and dive in and are like reverence for what makes it work and understanding the source material and understanding why people love it, people want to see the thing they love represented on the big screen. I mean, that, that is a dream of people to see the thing that they love, the thing that they've spent their time and their money over the years like playing and diving into and they want to see that up on the big screen and treat it well and so i hopefully we do that and they feel that it was uh well looked after you know that we were good custodians of uh, of this brand fortunately it's a very accessible game as well like when you're playing dnd like you know obviously there's there's some rules that take remembering but beyond that it's an incredibly inclusive game and 
So it kind of stands to, to reason that the movie itself can be inclusive as well if we're, if we're doing it right. Guys, I was going to ask you, what's next? Uh, we honestly, we don't, we don't know. You know, it, we, we would love to keep this thing going, but we're also not, we're superstitious. So we don't want to, we don't want to, you know, count too much on it. We're, we're hoping that it, that it has the splash and the reaction that, that we want but are also, like in any D&D campaign, willing to pivot if we have to. <laughs> I mean, should we be expecting to see more of the Daily Goldstein Latcham trio in future films, do you think? God, I hope so. I hope so. I, hope so. I think we work really well together. I think it's, it's such an intimate thing making a movie. You spend so much time together with your, your whole life just becomes the film. And so it's nice to do it with people that you uh, really enjoy being with. No, but I hope so. I I certainly hope so. I, I I certainly think we work well together. It's fun, you know. It's fun. And uh, Jeremy, what about yourself, buddy? What, what's what's coming up for you? Look, at the moment, my schedule consists of this movie coming out and us and making sure that it's that we put it out there in, in the right way and give it you know a chance to find an audience and making sure that we share it with the world in the right way. And I I'm not thinking about really anything yet besides this. And then hopefully a vacation. Um, <laughs> needed vacation. I think we all. Need- so, I mean, how how long have you guys spent making this? Seventeen years. <laughs> <laughs> Longer than you've been alive, yeah. Hugh. <laughs> touche, touche. Uh, pre pre pandemic, so I almost four years. And were you shooting through the pandemic, or do you? Yeah. Routes? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we were shooting through the pandemic. Yep. And and, and was it? Case. Did it hit? At what point did the pandemic hit? Were you before, as in, before we started? A before, week okay. we went to Ireland. There, so yeah. so basically, we were we were doing soft prep on in an office in Paramount, and then we were told, "Oh, you can't go to the office anymore." And so we went home. There was that couple weeks of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Those couple weeks of like, "Oh, it'll it'll be okay in a couple weeks," and then that <laughs> that reality sort of sank in. We went back to work and started and started continuing I, on. I remember a moment early, early in the process where we all hadn't seen each other in person. And we've all been working on the movie now for a month or so. And our line producer, our, our executive producer, Dennis Stewart and Jonathan and John and myself all met in Jonathan's front yard on uh, on lawn chairs that we had spread out across mm-hmm. the, you know, across the yard. And we had this like first meeting about the movie together in person and it was it was just really surreal because we're sitting in la like in lawn chairs right. 25 feet away from each other i think you didn't take the lawn chairs back inside <laughs> it was like wiping down packaged frozen meat i remember like i was the, <laughs> i was the wiper in the in the assembly line of decovidifying things um when we went to um belfast to start Remember we had the biggest conference room table in the world with like six people at it. <laughs> we had to yell to each other. We had those, with those plexiglass barriers and we were yelling through our masks and our face shields. And I mean, it, it was, it, it was, it takes some of the spontaneity out of it because you have to sure. prep a, a lot more. And um, it also was difficult in just um, getting, you know, uh, rehearsals going everyone had to quarantine for 10 days before they were even able to leave their their hotel room to to work and so so often we'd be having these meetings while we were quarantining 
while the uh, special effects guys and legacy guys were building these these creatures that we weren't even able to see in person until they were out of their quarantine. And the fight coordination was really tough because you didn't have the time that you, by, by the way, a testament to our stunt team and and Brad for just like being able to work with that and and, and roll with the punches. I mean, we even our table read, we had a, we had a table read when the when the cast first got out of quarantine and we had to have it in this conference room. We were, and normally you'd have a table read and you're around like a, a table. You know, that's why it's called a table read. <laughs> but we were in a ballroom, like spread out this giant conference room, giant conference room spread out all 15 feet away from each other and kind of yelling the, the, the actors are kind of yelling the lines out. <laughs> and it was just not intimate in the least. And so you're watching it and the movie you hear the movie for the first time coming from the actors and everyone's making notes in their scripts and, and making sure everything feels right. And it's so hard to tell because everyone's just like, I love you. You know, it's like everyone's like so spread out. I love that Jeremy's sample dialogue is, I, I love, love you. you. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you've put together. All right. Should we wrap up there, CJ? We'll wrap, yeah. Well, thanks, chaps. You've been legends. So. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to seeing the film. It's really good to hear that you guys put so much love into making a good film as well as a D&D film. Right, thank, thank you so you much. I hope you enjoy it when you see it. And enjoy it, I very much shall. I will most definitely have my bum in a seat in a cinema when the D&D movie comes out this Friday. I hope you will too. Everything we have heard about it says that it is a great adventure film that takes all the best parts of that experience those lovely, lovely gentlemen have and puts it into one fantastic film. Once again, that was John Francis Daly, Jonathan Goldstein and Jeremy Latcham. Thank you very much to that trio of amazing filmmakers it was an absolute pleasure speaking to them. Next week on the Filmmakers Podcast, we are bringing in some of the best of British with Alleluia director Richard Eyer. Actually, no, let's give him his proper nomenclature, Sir Richard Eyer, as he chats with Giles and the Butler Hearts about how he put together a team of classic British acting talent for his adaptation of Alan Bennett's play. This has been the Filmmakers Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to keep up to date with the latest happenings on the show, you can find us on all of the various social medias at, at @filmmakerspod. And if you want to get in touch with us, whether you want to ask us a question for the next business of film, whether you want to comment on the episodes, or whether you just want to tell us we're amazing, you can always reach us at thefilmmakerspodcast at gmail.com. And of course, if you'd like to support the future development of the show, we do have a Patreon page. Check out the show notes below for how you could contribute to the future of the podcast. Thank you very much for listening. We will see you next week. 